Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning. Uh, this morning is our last Sunday in the vocation sermon series we've been doing, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to hear from Doreen Beers. So uh, you want to stay for that, trust me. So this is... Uh, an opportunity to hear from someone else in our church community, and um, Doreen has great things to say. So let's pray before we read from Romans 12. Holy Spirit, would you reveal your truth to us? Would you point us to Jesus this morning? We ask you to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Amen. So we're going to read from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 16, and I encourage you to open that up, whether it's a hard copy of the Bible or on a screen, and to keep it open, because I'll be referring to various verses during the course of the sermon. So Romans 12, verses 1 to 16, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you think back to the beginning of this series on vocation, the very first Sunday, we looked at the calling of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. 
And I said that morning that Christian vocation always starts with a personal encounter with God. And that's still true. Our vocation as followers of Jesus is so much bigger than finding the right job or career or ministry. It, it includes those things, but it is bigger. And that first Sunday, I also told part of the story of how I came to put my trust in Christ. And part of the reason I did that was because my son Callum asked me on the phone one day how that had happened. And I was a little surprised because I thought he knew the story, but he didn't. The answer to his question is longer than I had time to really tell him about or time to tell you about that first Sunday. And, and these verses we've read from Romans, the first two in particular, are a big part of my story over the years. When I was 16, I had a counselor at Pioneer Camp named Mike Hare. And at the end of the LIT program that summer, the leader in training program, Mike gave me those two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to take home with me. And six months later, he was killed in a car accident while he was driving a group of students from the University Christian Fellowship Group at McMaster to a winter retreat. And his death, but even more, his life, ensured that I would never forget those two verses. And then eight years later, long after I had rejected Christian faith, I opened up a daily devotional booklet that my grandmother had given me. She was always giving them to me constantly, always, without ceasing. I never read them, though, and I wouldn't have opened it up that day if it hadn't been for uh, the reality I was going through a really hard time in my life, and that day in particular was, was pretty brutal. I had not read the Bible in years, and you'll never guess what the scripture reading was that day. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. And as I read that one-page reflection it felt like light flooded into the room. I told, drew an analogy between a basketball player uh, pretending to be the hero, shooting the game-winning shot, and how we put ourselves in that place of hero, of the one who wins, and said that God invites us in Christ to step out of that center role and to put Jesus in that role. And that was amazing grace to me, and that was the start of my journey of Christian faith. And that's how Paul begins here as well. He begins with grace. He writes, therefore, and he's referring to the preceding 11 chapters of this incredible book of the New Testament we call Romans. He says, in view of God's mercy in Jesus Christ, and now he's going to tell us how to live it out. And he starts with our whole life vocation as Christians. What does it mean to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Well, ancient people worshipped openly. They had actual temples. And you worship gods by making a sacrifice, usually some animal that had been killed. But Paul urges us here not to think of God as wanting payment from us. Rather, God wants us to live for him. And so our daily life, all of it, becomes worship. Worship for Christians isn't going to some religious place, a church or a temple, and doing something. It's our whole lives. John Calvin says that by bodies, Paul doesn't only mean our bones and our skin, but the whole of who we are. 
We are not our own, but have passed entirely over to God so that we belong to him, which cannot be unless we surrender our will to him. So this is a whole life vocation we have, and we're holy. I think we struggle to think of ourselves that way, but Scripture says that we are holy because we are set aside for God. We have a purpose, and that He has led us into that. And we're pleasing to God because of His mercy in Christ, Christ who provided the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And so in response, we offer ourselves to, to God all the time. Living sacrifices are a little awkward on the altar because they have this habit of crawling off the altar. A dead sacrifice is really convenient because it sits right there and does its job. But a living sacrifice is forever trying to escape off the altar. And we experience that ourselves. We have to be vigilant. We examine ourselves on a daily basis uh, to offer up our will, to surrender our will to God. Now, that's in stark contrast to our culture, which is all about freedom and choice. But we are called to be sacrifices. We give up control. We give up our independence, as hard as that is to do. And so life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means ultimately that you're serving something or someone else if you're living for yourself that way. Whether it's your work, your family, your pleasure, you name it. That is your altar, and that's where you're worshiping if you're living apart from God. Jesus is better by far. He offers true freedom. He offers abundant life, even as living sacrifices. Not life that comes through self-gratification, but life that comes through trusting him, putting him first, dying to yourself. In verse 2 of this chapter, Paul goes on to talk about another aspect of our vocation. First, it was our whole life vocation. And here we see that our calling is countercultural too. Paul makes it clear that we should be different from the pattern of the world around us. And by that, he means the spirit of the world, which is the human instinct to resist and reject God. So this isn't a new set of rules that we acquire as Christians, countercultural Christian rules that we have to follow now. We are living sacrifices, so this leads to life, not to performance all over again. How can we be changed, transformed by the renewing of our minds? Well, the third chapter of the book of Titus is the only other place in the New Testament where we have this word renew. And there it says that renewal only comes through the Holy Spirit. And so we ask the Spirit to transform us. We ask the Holy Spirit for fruit and growth in our lives, and He changes us, first of all, from the inside out, as we repent of our self-centered ways, and then He changes us from the outside in by revealing God's truth in His Word and by pointing us to Jesus. And that's, I trust, why you're here this morning or why you're listening later on. John Stott used to talk about the Christian discipline of double listening, so we listen to God's Word as it's preached on Sunday mornings in the context of church community. We also listen to God's Word in our personal reading of Scripture and in groups. We study the Bible together. 
But we don't cut ourselves off from the world as we do that. We also listen to voices in the world. And Justin talked about that, that last week, preaching on Acts chapter 17. John Stott writes this, Double listening involves listening to the Word of God and listening to the world. A superficial acquaintance with Scripture won't do. We need to absorb a total biblical vision of life. And we need to listen to the voices of the modern world, especially fusion, pain, and alienation. We listen to the Word of God in order to understand, believe, and obey it. We listen to the voices of the world around us in order not in order to believe and obey, but in order to understand. And so as the Spirit renews our minds, we will find that we are able to test and approve God's will. But we shouldn't get hung up too much on God's will. Some of you may have really struggled and spent years trying to figure out what that is. I got an email from one person in our congregation at the start of this series who was worried that she might have missed out on her vocation. And I tried to assure her that vocation is not one thing, and God's will is not one thing. And again, if you look at the next verse, verse 3, you have grace, and we need it because we all make mistakes, and we are going to miss the mark. And so we can be in God's will as these broken vessels we are, because we contain the treasure of the gospel. And God is always inviting us back to the table back to seeking him and his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We got a, a puppy in our family right before the pandemic started. Apparently getting puppies is all the rage now. They, they must be a lot more expensive. We got in just in time to get our pre-pandemic puppy. And her name is Pepper. That's a lot of peas. Pre-pandemic puppy Pepper. She is beautiful to us. We love Pepper. And she does this thing that amazes me. I, I did have a dog when I was growing up, so I guess it shouldn't really. But whenever one of us walks into the room, whenever she hears my voice, especially if I've been out for a while, her tail starts wagging like crazy. You've probably seen this with dogs. Pepper is so attentive to us. She takes such pleasure in us. She is aligned with our family. And I think that's maybe a helpful analogy to describe what it's like to be seeking God's will, to be trying to live according to his desire for our lives. That's the kind of harmony God wants us to enjoy when we trust that he wants the best for us. And verse 12 gives us a picture of that kind of life. It says, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. That is our tales wagging in the presence of our Lord and Master, Jesus. And as part of this renewal of our minds, we have to be alert to the pattern of the world and resist it. John Stott was a leader who did not draw attention to himself. J.I. Packer, who passed away in July, who was my teacher at Regent College, was the same way. He never drew attention to himself. Both of those guys could have had ministries named after them, they could have built empires around their effectiveness and success, but they did not. Ravi Zacharias did, on the other hand. And I don't want to pile on to the memory of Ravi Zacharias, but his tragic story, some of you know Ravi Zacharias as a famous Canadian-Indian Christian leader and evangelist and apologist, we say someone who defended the Christian faith. And since his death in May... 
What has come out, and especially in the last couple of weeks, is this horrific story of sexual abuse. And this can remind us, this, this I think is instructive because this is what happens when we pursue the pattern of the world. Power corrupts, money corrupts, having multiple members of your family on your board and in your pay is always a bad sign. As Christians, we're called to be humble, we're called to embrace accountability in the church. That's where Paul is going to take us next. We're called to be together in the church. Specifically, we have a vocation of practicing humility in community. So we started with a whole life vocation, and then we saw that our vocation is countercultural, and now we're called to humility in community. Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself. Or I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. You're going to need humility to live out your vocation as part of the body of Christ. It's not going to be easy, but the Spirit gives us the gifts we need as the church. And Paul describes it here. He says, we're one body with many parts and many gifts. And we read that, and I think often we immediately want to know, so what's my gift? It's only natural. I don't have time this morning to get into the individual gifts, but I did want to point out that what my camp counselor, Mike Hare, did for me was to speak a prophetic word into my life all those years ago when I was a teenager at Pioneer Camp. And my grandmother did the same thing simply by passing on that Daily Bread devotional to me. When was the last time you gave someone a book that you thought could either introduce them to Christian faith or, or help them in their faith, or a devotional? Or maybe you sent someone a text or an email with a Bible verse in it. Well, those are examples of prophetic ministry. It's not some weird, obscure thing. Prophecy is speech that reveals Jesus and that's based on Scripture. It's always according to the faith, Paul says. And Paul warns us that as we exercise our gifts, we risk becoming proud. But if it's about God's grace, and that's what he says, all the gifts come from grace, then it can't be about me or my group or my way of doing it. That's the difference between spiritual gifts and talents. When someone uses a spiritual gift, you receive God and his grace. When someone is relying on their own talent, what you receive is them. You see only them. It's human effort. But a spiritual gift makes the person who practices it decrease and glorifies God instead. The more we are humble in community together, the more we are going to reveal Christ and enjoy him and glorify him. Maybe the real question coming out of this section of Romans 12 is the most obvious and simple one. How are you participating in the gifts, the practice of the gifts in the church? Are you, would you say right now you're active in developing your gift or gifts and in using them to serve others? I think it's important for us to see the breadth of Paul's vision of Christian vocation for us as individuals, for us together as the church, and as we're sent out into the world around us. I think one of the struggles I had as a young adult was I thought Christian life and the Christian faith was very narrow. Uh, and as I started to see how, how all-encompassing it is, I became more and more excited. 
Maybe you think of yourself as someone who's conservative. Maybe you consider yourself to be more liberal. Well, Christian counterculture encompasses all of that. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, puts it like this. He says, the church may take a firm stand against the corrosion, against the erosion of objective morality and biblical truth. The church may act courageously on behalf of those who are oppressed or marginalized. But isn't the ultimate distinctive countercultural fact about our church the capacity we have to live sacrificially for the sake of each other? Now, the first part of what he wrote there sounds conservative, taking a firm stand against the erosion of objective morality and biblical truth. That's not conforming to the pattern of this world, right? The second part of what he wrote about courage on behalf of the oppressed, well, that sounds more liberal. Both of these aspects of Christian faith are included in the vision Paul lays out in Romans 12. And we need them both. Starting in verse 9, Paul goes on to describe the kind of life the Christian vocation leads to. It looks like hospitality, harmony, peace, reconciliation. We are called to live sacrificially for the sake of one another. And rather than zero in on those verses, I want to tell you a story of where I see that happening. Rebecca Sherboneau is a member of Paris Presbyterian Church here in Ontario. About seven years ago, she and her friend Colleen had a vision. They had a dream for something that they thought could maybe happen, something that God was calling them to. They wanted to start a business that would meet a number of needs that were close to their hearts. It would feed people tasty and nutritious food. It would provide meaningful employment for adults with special needs. And it would make money. And so they started the raw carrot in their church kitchen. And their goal in that first year was to sell $5,000 of gourmet carrot soup. Instead, they did $25,000 in sales. And today, years later, they've expanded to four locations. There are raw carrot franchises in Paris, where it started, Woodstock, Mount Forest, and Kitchener, and they have 30 employees. It has been hard for them. The margins on soup are very thin, and they rely on grants that are not always forthcoming. But God has been faithful, and they continue to grow with a vision that they believe Jesus gave them to serve others. As we wrap up our vocation series, I want to ask once again, as we have every Sunday, what is your dream? What is God calling you to? I hope you've been pondering that in recent weeks and praying about it too. I hope that you'll have a, a chance to try to answer that question with others, maybe even after the service today in your neighborhood group if you're a part of one. As we finish this series, we have to go back to the beginning and the beginning of this chapter of Romans in particular or we're going to lose our way in the search for a vocation, for something, a dream, a calling. All of it is built, if it's built to last, on the foundation that is Christ. It's only in view of God's mercy, as Paul says in verse 1. 
On our own, we are simply not going to be able to live sacrificially for one another. It's only possible by the amazing grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. He's the one who made the sacrifice that enables us to live sacrificially. He went to the cross, and from the cross, he forgives us our sins, and he gives us a new life. It starts in relationship with Jesus, and as the Holy Spirit changes us and renews us, renews our minds, our whole way of thinking, our worldview. It starts as we practice humility in community and commit ourselves to the church, as we use our gifts, not for our own benefit, but to serve one another, and as we reach out with God's love to those in need well beyond this building, beyond our community, beyond the people we know 